as a church, we're doing a series on some of the basics of our faith, some of the foundational elements. And so we've been looking at things like God and his word and sin. And this morning, we're going to look at the concept of salvation, which I feel is one of the major themes in all of Christianity. It's the idea that God is a saving God, and he's made salvation available to us through his son. And so what I want to do is I want to take you into a letter that was written to a church scattered, going through a lot of trials and difficulties. So if you look down by your feet, you should be able to see a basket somewhere around. And in those baskets, we have Bibles. And and 1 Peter, the letter we're going to go to, is on page 980. 980. So if you grab that Bible, uh, that'll be helpful. We'll we'll move through that together. Um, I was thinking about salvation and wondering, you know, where, where we should go as a church family. And I thought, man, this is, a, this is maybe a good spot for us because a lot of us in here are Christians. And so we need to be reminded of the beauty of our salvation. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, what we'll be talking about um, hopefully will be clear enough to you and, and we'll make some, some efforts toward the end to just make it clear that salvation is what we hope you will experience, uh, that you would place your faith in Christ. But a lot of us in here, we have done that. We've made a decision. We've trusted the Lord, and we, we're, going through, we're cruising through life now. And what we find out is life is brutal, and things are hard, and doubts are real. And so when Peter writes this letter to the scattered church, he's going to highlight salvation. He's going to remind us and rehearse our salvation. And a part of the purpose for the, for the letter is for us to be able to say, even if it's hard, our salvation is glorious. And even if it's hard, we can have confidence in our Savior. And we need to interpret the experiences of our lives through the grid of what God is up to in this world. And so I'm going to read the text. We'll pray and we'll get to work. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going verses 3 to 12. So it reads like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's pray. Lord, would you use our time together in your word to speak to each of our hearts? Lord, would you help us to acknowledge and and admire the salvation that you've made available to us? Lord, would you steady our hearts 
in the truths that we find here. Would you help us to be your people navigating this messy life that we live and, and help us, God, to embrace the, the beauty of your saving work. And I pray for everyone in here that they would hear your voice today. Um, I pray that I would not get in the way or obscure anything that you're trying to do, God, but that you would be loud and clear and we would hear your voice and your truth and we would be drawn to the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So as we look at this, we'll see um, what salvation is. It's described there on the front end, that there are certain features about salvation that are, that are true for us. And then we're going to look at what that does. I think it's important that as Christians, we would think through, if we are believing in our Savior, how will that show up in our ordinary lives? And it does. It does. And then finally, at the end, Peter does something for us, and I think it's important. A lot of times we hear information, and, and it can be beautiful, it can be compelling. Sometimes what we need to do is to just be encouraged. And at the end, he just spends a, a paragraph reflecting on the greatness of our salvation so that we can kind of float out of here, if you will, acknowledging what God has done for us. So what is salvation? This is verses 3 to 5. It's described for us. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of the features of salvation is that God gives new life. Christianity and, and, and experiencing salvation is not just tacking something else onto your life. A lot of people, kind of man on the street, if you were to ask them, hey, what do you need to do to be saved? Or maybe a more popular way to phrase it would be, hey, how, how, how could you get into heaven? A lot of people who would identify as Christians would say something like this. The way to get into heaven or the way to experience salvation is to be a good person. That if I do enough good stuff, that's, kind of my, that's what I'm banking on, that I'm going to get to the pearly white gates and they're going to ask, hey, you know, what, what, what admits you in here? And I'll be able to say, look, I'm not perfect and I know I screwed up a bunch, but look at all the evidence of my good life. And that's what a lot of people think Christianity is. But the Bible says salvation is new life. It's different. It's categorically different. It's not just saying, I want to raise my kids the right way. I want to be a good person. I'm going to go to church from time to time. Salvation is when God imparts life to you, that you become a new creation, that God gives the, his, his spirit in such a way that you come to life to the things of God. So new life is a part of salvation. God says that he will give new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it is a feature of salvation that we are born again. Now, those of us that have grown up in the church, we might have a hard time pointing to that event in our lives. But that it happened is not questionable. It did. If you're a Christian, you have been born again. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in a Christian household, so I look at my upbringing and all the things that I did along that time, and I go, yeah, I'm not exactly sure when this happened. But that it happened, I know, because I'm a sincere believer and I've got the new life of God going on in me. Uh, just like I don't remember the day of my birth, right? I know I was there, uh, my natural birth. I don't remember what all happened there, but I know it did happen. And so I look back on that and I can say, it, it for sure happened. Uh, I don't know the details of it, but I'm sure that it did happen. In the same way, it is a distinct work of God when he gives new life to us. And we might not be able to pinpoint it and say, this I made a decision here, I, I, I did something at church, or this season was when it happened. But a lot of us should be able to say, even if I can't pin it down, I know that it's occurring in me. Because the new life of God has broken in and is beginning to change me from the inside out. And that 
new life is a powerful reality. It's a powerful reality. John Stott is asking the question, saying, is it possible to make a sour person sweet? Or a proud person humble? Or a selfish person unselfish? The Bible declares emphatically that these things can take place. It is a part of the glory of the gospel. The gospel, the salvation that we confess, uh, that we experience, it changes people. And it doesn't, for some of us, it's dramatic and it seems like it could happen overnight. For many of us, it's a process that God is doing in us. But the new life invades us and we begin to love the things of God. And we want desperately to please him. We want to uh, know more about him and what he would like from our lives. For me, it happened probably when I was 18 years old. Growing up in a Christian household, I knew a lot about the church and the Bible and Christ. But at 18 years old, Something happened where, as a young man, I was beginning to think, I want this faith to be my own, and I want this faith to influence every decision that I make. And I began to pursue that and align my life in that direction. And I think if you want to sincerely call yourself a Christian, you should be willing to say, I'm experiencing the new life of God, and it shows up because I want what he wants. And I'm going to begin to align my life to that reality. So a part of our salvation is this new birth, and it is through this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The salvation that we have is, is, it points to that reality that Jesus Christ died and came back from the dead. That when we talk about being saved, it's not just this, man, I really wish this were true, because it sounds really neat that God invites me into a relationship with him. He makes everything available. I can be forgiven. I can have all these benefits. And, and, and that story in and of itself is compelling, but, but Christianity is even better than that. It gives us evidence. It gives us proof that what we're talking about isn't make-believe, but it really did happen. We were watching, I don't know why, but Ash pulled out um, Mary Poppins the other night. You guys remember Mary Poppins, the old school movie? And we were watching it, and, it, and I, you know, I saw it when I was a kid, but I don't remember a lot of it. And so we were watching it, and I was like, man, this is really, this is really fun. And this is really neat. And wouldn't it be awesome if there were people like her, nannies who can, you know, go in and bring families back together and help people to realize the important things in life and, and do all these fun things with the kids. And, and it's a fun story, but at the end of the day, it's make-believe. And in the same way, when we think about Christianity, we can go, man, that's a really cool story, and I hope that it's true. And wouldn't it be wonderful if God could do that for me? But God does even better than that. He says, I'll give you evidence. Jesus Christ said, that anyone who comes to him would receive eternal life. And he died in our place. And then what does he do? From the cross, he prays, it is finished. Three days later, he shows up again. So we don't have to go through life going, I wonder if this salvation is really going to take, right? I wonder if this is really true. I wonder if, you know, I, I'm, you know it's, it's worth it to just try it out because, I mean, what, what do I have to lose? We don't have to go through life with that anxiety because we are trusting the Savior who died and came back to life. And he gives then evidence that the, the salvation we have is something he's giving to us. He gives us assurance then of, what, of the ability to save. And then that ministry of his, it helps us to, to believe it and to buy into it. And, and it gives us a sample of what God is doing in our lives. That if Jesus died and came back from the dead, he's offering this new life to us and he's promising that we'll do the same. And so Ed Clowney puts it like this, in Christ's triumph, God makes all things new beginning with us. 
God is making new things and the salvation that we as a church want to continue to hold high, the salvation that we embrace, that salvation changes us. That we become new creatures and we become people who are living out the resurrected life in the here and now. So our salvation involves this new birth through the resurrection. It also tells us that we have this inheritance. That when we are saved people, we, we have something to look forward to. And it's a good thing to look forward to. In fact, it's not going away. Um, if I were to say to my daughter, hey, Reese, you know, five, five years old, I said, hey, Reese, I've got an inheritance for you. Uh, when you turn 16, we are going to give you uh, my wife's car. And you can drive that thing. It'll be yours. Now, the problem with my wife's car is it's not good. Um, we bought it in the last year, but things have already broken down on it. Electrical, weird little sensors and parts that cost way more than they should, and it's been breaking down. So if I say to her, hey, you can have Ash's car. That sounds great to a five-year-old, but by the time she gets it, there's not going to be a car left for her. When God says you have an inheritance, he also says it is something that will not fade or spoil or rot or malfunction. This inheritance is kept for you by God himself. You have something that you will inherit that will never go away. Look at verses four and five. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We see that salvation then results in our inheritance, but a lot of it is looking to the future. And this is really cool. When we talk about being saved, we don't just look at what God did, you know, when I was 18. We recognize that that saving work is, is operative in all these different ways. So salvation has a past tense. I, I can go, there was a season in my life where I realized it, it became real for me. But you know what? God is saving me today. That salvation is presently at work in my life and God is reforming me and changing me and helping me to, to become more of who he wants me to be. But finally, there's a reality that salvation is coming. And there's a day that Christ will return and the, the salvation that we're hoping for will be revealed in the last time. So we're looking forward with anticipation to the fullness of our salvation. And what do we find out? We have an inheritance there. That no matter what's going on presently, there's a reward coming down the line. So no matter what's going on right now, if you have salvation, you have an inheritance that you can trust in and believe will be there for you. Uh, it's not going to fade. It's not going to spoil. And that inheritance, I would put it this way, I think that inheritance is God himself and all of the benefits that come along with that. But you get God. If you are a saved individual, you have God. And that's a good deal. When the Israelites were told, you guys are going to inherit a land. It's a promised land. It's the, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. But then God turns to Aaron. This is Numbers 18.20. He turns to Aaron and his descendants. Aaron, will, he's the priest, and his descendants will be the priesthood after him. And he says to, God says to Aaron, you don't get an inheritance. You, you, when we go into the land, you don't get a piece of land. And you don't get a portion God spoke to Aaron and he said, you will have no inheritance in their land and you will have no share among them. And here's why. He said, I am your inheritance. I'm your share. And Aaron didn't go, wait, wait, wait. Let's negotiate this. Come on, like, uh, can we just get a little piece of land? When, when he heard, when Aaron heard, he gets God, that's a good deal. So for you, when you trust in 
Christ for salvation, and God says, I'm giving you myself, I'm giving you this inheritance, we should be able to say, we're getting more, not less. We're getting the creator who made all of these things. We're, we're getting God. Now, here's why this is important. Because we're cruising through life, and some of us, our bank accounts are overdrawn. And some of us, we don't have a great retirement plan. And some of us, our relationships are fractured and broken. And we need to know that the inheritance that's coming will eclipse all of that. And what we have in store for us as believers will overwhelm us with the goodness of God. We have that. And so being a Christian and experiencing salvation is when you get to the point where you say, God is my inheritance. He's my portion. He's my treasure. Take everything else away. If I have him, I've got what I need. Take everything else away. If I have him, I know that I have the very best thing in life. C.S. Lewis put it like this. This will steady us. Lewis said, don't let your happiness depend on something you could lose. A lot of us are cruising through life and our happiness is dependent upon our circumstances and our possessions and our relationships. But when we experience salvation, our inheritance is for sure. And when our love and our treasure is there, then we can go through hell and still be okay. It's not easy, and I'm not trying to minimize the experience some of us are going through, but we have an inheritance. So our salvation is a new birth through the resurrection with the gift of an inheritance. So what does that do to people? When you have that salvation, what does that do? Uh, let's look at that in verses six to nine. The first thing that we, that we notice is that salvation makes people worship. Um, Peter already began this in verse three. He said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing a letter and he's writing this letter and, and on the front end, he can't help but worship. So he's writing in kind of a, a, a worshipful rejoicement of who God is and what he's doing. And I, I love that because that shows he gets it. He's not just you know, writing a cold letter where he's like, you know, unaffected by it. And hey guys, I want you to know this information. He's so moved by it that even in his letter, he's saying, rejoice in God for what he's doing. And, and I love that. I think that that's what Christian authors should do. Some of my favorite books are written by people who can't help but think about the Lord and think about the audience. And you can tell the emotional engagement. It's not just information on a page, but it's communicated in a way where you go, this person loves their Savior and wants what's best for other people. And I think that's what every Christian communicator should be doing. And this week I was reflecting on that and just wondering how often I've failed to live up to that standard. I'm sure, I know for sure, there have been mornings where I've stood up here and I haven't allowed the beauty of the things that are here to affect the way that I feel. And I can stand up here and deliver a message, but that, I was thinking about it this week. When I do that, when I fail to communicate how awesome this stuff is, when I fail to worship in the moment while preaching is happening and invite you into that experience as well, I'm actually sinning against you. And, and I don't think that that's the right thing to do, to just stand up and give Bible talks. I want people to understand the salvation that God makes available to us should cause us to rejoice. Our hearts should be overwhelmed with gratitude of what God has done. Look at verse six. It says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. When you understand salvation and what God has done for you, we should rejoice greatly. We should be people who some of us, we don't sing very well. We should still try during Sunday morning, but no matter what, we should be walking around just kind of being like, hey, guys, do you, do you know what's going on? God exists and he loves me and he saved me. 
And there should be this worshipful interaction all the time. And I think that when we experience salvation, it shows up in the way that, in the way that we worship. All of us are worshiping all the time. It's just how God built us. But people who've experienced salvation worship God. They recognize their creator. They recognize what God has done in the sending of his son, and they worship him. And so we should evaluate whether or not we're fully embracing the salvation available to us. The way that we can do that is simply to ask yourself, am I coming in to church this morning with a posture, with a heart that's full of gratitude for God? Because if we say no, then God is inviting us into deeper experiences of that salvation. When we understand what he's done, we should be worshipful people. So that's one of the effects of salvation. Here's another one. This one's crazy. But people who are saved can go through trials and difficulties and circumstances that are unfavorable, and they can suffer gracefully. Look with me at verse 6. It says, though, for, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So you, you're worshiping, but right now you're going through grief. You're going through trials of all kinds. And so we need to be careful Salvation does not mean God swoops in and it's easy peasy. You just cruise through life and everything's fine. Salvation means that the power of God begins to show up in your life. And now when you do go through trials and you will, you do it differently because you know God's in charge and he's working for your good. So look at what happens. Verse seven, these have come, these trials, they've come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. What's it talking about here? He's saying, look, you're going through stuff right now. He can say it to the church that's scattered, and he's saying it to the church in McChesney Park. Look, guys, you, uh, I know you are going thing, through things right now, and they're hard, and they're difficult. But God is doing something in the midst of that. And he uses this analogy. He says it's kind of like gold. And gold, if you want it to be pure, you heat it up. You put it in a blazing furnace and you melt it. And when it's melted, imperfections come to the surface. And a refiner does that because he wants the purest gold. And he does it over and over again until it's heated and there's no more imperfections coming to the surface. In the same way, God allows for us to go through trials and he uses them in that refining way. That things come to the surface when we go through struggles and God is revealing our faith and really making our faith improved. And, and so we go through these trials and God is working and he's proving the genuineness of our faith. Let me just tell you, you know, I'll give you an example from my own life. It's very petty. It's very small. And then you guys that are going through much more severe things, you'll know, you'll know how to apply this stuff as well. But man, when we bought Ash's car, we thought we were getting a killer deal. A couple months ago, after already repairing a couple of fluky electronic things on there, Ash calls me up and she says, she went to pick Reese up at the school and she calls me up and she goes, hey, uh, I'm at the parking lot of the school picking Reese up and my car's dead. Okay, great. So I hop in my car, I cruise over there and we pop the hood and the terminals on the battery are totally corroded. So I think, okay, I'll clean them up. And so I get some tools and I, uh, you know, pop them off there and the, the battery terminal breaks. I'm like, oh, come on, are you kidding me? So I go down the road and I get a battery and I replace it. And I'm using tools from the school and it's pretty iffy and I'm afraid I'm going to shock myself and everything else. But I get it in there and I get it working and we drive home. Well, later that night, Ash is taking Mackenzie home and she calls me again. She goes, my car's dead. I go, are you kidding me? So I cruise over there 
And I find out, okay, it's not the battery, it's not the connections, and so we have to have the repair shop work on it. And they call me up and they say, it's, a, it's the alternator, which is a very, very expensive part for whatever reason. Uh, we want to do the name brand. We don't want to do the off stuff because if we're tearing into this, we never want to do this again. I was like, oh, awesome. So hundreds of dollars right there. The repair on it, you have to take the car apart to get to the alternator. So they're saying this is like a multi-day fix and lots of hours of labor. I'm like, man, I don't have the money for this stuff. So we, if I negotiate, we get it all done, and uh, I go to pick the car up, and the keys don't work. The little key fob thing does not work the way it's supposed to work. And I'm like, come on. So I go in there, and they say, okay, well, we'll reprogram it. We'll get a locksmith there. We'll reprogram the key. So they bring the locksmith over. She spends an afternoon working on it. She says, I don't know what's wrong with it. I reprogrammed it. It doesn't work. They say, maybe we bumped a wire in there. Maybe the ground isn't working. And I'm like, come on. And here's what happens. So I'm heading home and I'm talking to Ash and the kids and they're like, dude, we're just going to give you some space. We haven't seen you like this because here's what's, here's what's going on with me. In the midst of all of that car trouble, which is, you know, it's a car and we have two and, you know, we're totally fine. But in the midst of all of that, the cumulative pressure of launching a campus and leading people and, and all the other things that are going on and conversations that we're having with elders and, and things at the church, all of that is weighing so heavy on me that I get home and, and they know we need to stay away from you. Which if you know me and my family, that's just weird. That's unusual for us. But they're like, you are irritable. You're short with us. You're, you're just all these different things. Here's what's going on. This, this car issue is revealing in me my real heart. And if everything's fine, nobody knows that. I don't even know that. But when I'm going through stuff like that, what happens? It comes to the surface. And all of a sudden I realize my irritability, my lack of faith, my thinking I have to do everything and fix everything, and all of that's coming to the surface. And here's what God is doing then. He's loving me. He's loving me because it would be better for me to go through an experience like that and have my heart revealed than for everything to just be fine and for me to be unaware that I have unbelief and that I can be so awful to my own family. Now, that is a petty example, a car breaking down. But what some of you guys are going through right now, God wants to assure you he's not, he's, he's not absent and he's not unconcerned. The stuff that you're going through right now, the difficulty of health stuff and financial stuff and relational stuff, God isn't aloof sitting back going, yeah, good luck with all that. He actually loves you deeply. And in the midst of what you're presently going through, he's going to work something good and beautiful on your behalf. He's going to prove the genuineness of your faith, your trust in him. Now, it is not a pretty experience. I sat with a friend who... Uh, one of his mentors committed suicide and his own faith was very shaky and he was having some persistent struggle with sin and he got to the point where he said, Cor, I, I just can't do it anymore. I can't do this thing anymore. I, I don't really have a faith anymore. If God is real, something is messed up in my relationship with him and I just can't pretend everything's fine. I can't do this. And that went on for a year and a half where he was struggling with his own faith. 
But here's the beautiful thing that happened. In the midst of all of that, through the difficulty and just the, the raw honesty, he comes out on the other side with a deeper and greater faith. Now, what you're going through right now, God will use it for your good if you will trust him and believe in him. These trials have come to prove the genuineness of your faith. And even if there isn't a success story at the end, there is a glory that will be revealed. And it is coming. There is hope. And we're told this at the very end of that verse. It will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus arrives and is revealed. Now, in the midst of that, we can suffer gracefully, but we also experience Christ in our lives. Look at verses 8 and 9. I think Peter's really astonished by this. He spent three years face-to-face with the person, Jesus Christ. He got to watch him, eat with him, walk with him, see him interact with people. And now he's writing to a church that has never personally, physically met Jesus. And he writes like this, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When Peter's able to look at us today and he's, he's probably racking his brain a little bit, this is incredible. You guys have never physically, personally met Christ, but you love him. You've not seen him, but you believe in him. And a result of that, as you're experiencing him in your lives, you have joy and a, a glorious, inexpressible joy. You have the Savior, and though uh, you're not able to kind of do dinner with him or coffee with him or whatever, you have him in your life in such a way, if you're saved, you have him in a way that shows up in your joy. Now, that's beautiful. And Peter's reminding us that one of the benefits of salvation then is, even in the absence of the physical presence of Christ, you have a relationship with the living God, and it shows up in, your, in the way that you feel and think, and act. It's insane. The final portion of our text, the last little paragraph, is where Peter is helping us to reflect on how awesome or great our salvation is. If what we've said is true so far, that God gives us new life through the resurrection of Christ, if, if that new life shows up in the way that, we, that we, we do things with joy, and we rejoice, and we suffer with grace, and all of that, then he, he just wants to take a minute to kind of encourage us and go, it's even better than you think. What you have is even better than you think. So don't, don't just imagine that, you know, salvation, oh, not that big of a deal. What you have is so profound. Let's look at it. It's in verses 10 to 12. It's talking about how prophets and angels look at what we have and they consider our position is an advantage. Let's look at the prophets first. Look at verses 10 and following, concerning this salvation, concerning what you have, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. Okay, there's a dude named Isaiah, and one day you're going to meet him, and he's going to put his arm around you, and every Isaiah that you've ever met is actually named after him, even if they don't know him, because of the influence that he had. And he's going to go, guys, did you see what I wrote? I can't believe that you had access to that and you knew what it meant because I was looking intently trying to see the fulfillment of what I was saying. You had it. Isn't that wonderful? Like this is no small thing. He's going to be standing there going, I was looking forward to your day. 
I, I can't believe you got to live this thing out. You got to see how he lived and, and did his thing and then had that explained to you. He, concerning this salvation, the prophets are searching intently and with the greatest care. We're, we're in a privileged position because we stand in a, in a time in history where we can see what Christ has done. Now, they were trying to find out the time, verses 11, and following the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when they predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke. Here's one of my hobby horses, and just bear with me, but man, the, the Bible and the Old Testament are for you. They're to serve you. And the prophets who were writing these things down, they knew something about what they were communicating and how it would be a benefit to you. They weren't just mindlessly like, oh, God's telling me these words. Jeremiah, what's your, what's your letter about? I have no idea. God just kept telling, feeding me words and I put them on paper. He knew something about the gracious message that God was giving to us. He knew something about the sufferings of the Messiah. The, the prophets knew that there would be glory after suffering. And they knew that there would be usefulness in their message for those to come. But here's what they didn't know. They didn't know the time and they didn't know the circumstances but they knew an awful lot about our Savior. And that, what they wrote is for you. So you should go there and read it and learn more about your Savior. Now, what we have then, the prophets wish on. They're looking intently going, man, wouldn't it be wild to be sitting where they're at? And they could see the sufferings, Isaiah 53, of what Jesus was going to go through and then his glory that would follow. I can't believe that this church community has all of that. Not only that, we have it explained to us. Look at verse 12, halfway through it. They spoke, the prophets spoke, of the things that have now been told you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from, from heaven. We have what they were looking for, and we have it explained to us. Um, we have it explained by the New Testament letters where we're beginning to see, okay, everything that was predicted came true in him. And they all long to have what we have, and we have it clearly explained as it's preached in the gospel to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What an awesome reality. Here's the, here's the final piece. Look at this. This blows my mind. The angels, verse 12, even angels long to look into these things. We're sitting at church and angels wish that they were in your seat. Isn't that weird? Angels long to look into these things. And I was like, why? Why do angels look at what we have longingly? They obviously know right? They're very smart individuals. They've been around a long, long time. They're in the courts of heaven, all of that. So why is it that they look at you and us and they go, man, that is awesome. And then last night, Janet did this. She posted on Facebook and she said, hey, I'm finally getting around to watching The Greatest Showman. And it clicked. Here's what I did. I, my family, we watched The Greatest Showman. I don't like musicals. I don't like people just breaking into song, but we watched The Greatest Showman and I fell in love with the movie. And then my family, my kids want to watch it all the time. And we have it on the, you know, the soundtrack playing in our cars as we're cruising around. So Janet posts on it. And I know the movie. I can sing the movie. Um, I know how it's going to end. But what am I doing? I'm like, I wonder what she thinks. Right? I wonder if she's loving this like, like we love it. I think that's what the angels are doing. They're looking at us going, dude, this is so insane what God has done. This salvation that he sent Jesus and he died for sinners and he reconciles them to himself. They're looking at it. They know the details of it. They know, they know all the facts, but what are, why are they looking longingly at what we're doing at church? Well, because they, they realize this is awesome. I hope they get it. 
This is so insane what God has done. I hope that everyone who's in here is just moved by it. That they can't, the rest of their week is just affected by the fact that they were at church thinking about their salvation. Angels look at you thinking those sorts of things. It's wild. So as a church, we have to do a good job of just rehearsing this over and over again because here's what goes on with me. I drift into just apathy. I don't think about it the way that I should. And Peter is reminding us here, you have a great salvation. Here's what it is. It's a salvation that gives you new birth and an inheritance with God himself through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That salvation if you believe in it, will begin to change your life right now. God can help you to navigate the difficulty of pain and suffering and trials, and you will do it with joy. And you will be rejoicing through all of it as well. It is a great salvation. It is a salvation that history looks at and goes, this is wild, and we wish we were in your shoes. So this salvation is awesome. And I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I, I, I want to say this while they do come. But if you've never trusted in Jesus for that salvation, I want to talk to you today. I want you to think about what it would look like to place your faith in him. If it is so awesome and if it is so great, and it is, then I want you to have the opportunity to respond and say, look, I'm going to place my faith in him. And I know it's not a fairy tale. I know it really happened. He came back from the dead. I'm going to trust him for my salvation. I want to talk to you and I want to pray with you. But for everyone else who's in here who already considers themselves to be a believer, to be saved, I want us to contemplate the glory of what God has done. We should worship really hard right now because we have spent the last little stretch reflecting on what God has done for us. That even in the brokenness of our lives, God is not absent. It's, it's not not working. God is working his salvation in our hearts and in our lives and it helps us to appreciate our Savior even more. So let me pray, and then I'll ask you to stand and worship. Lord, I ask right now for anyone who's never trusted in Christ, maybe knows a lot about him, maybe has been at church for numbers of years, but maybe has never fully surrendered to him as Lord and Savior, would you help them to take that bold step of faith today? And let them find him beautiful and compelling and satisfying. Let them find him to be the savior that he truly is. And for all of us, God, who already consider him Lord and savior, would you help us to reflect on the greatness of our salvation and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.